Hey, this is another episode of Closed. I'm Lee Berkstein. I'm here with William Cooper Knowlton. We'll get back to why that's important in a second. We're super excited to be here with William Cohan. William is a former Wall Street MMA investment banker. With 17 years experience. He's also a very accomplished author, has written such nonfiction narratives as Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World, House of Cards. Uh, he's drawn on some of his MMA background and writing some really great books. And more recently, he's the founding partner of Puck, which is a daily digital news and opinion publication. William, thanks so much for having you here today. Hey, great to be here, Lee. And William Cooper. <laughs> William Cooper. I'm pretty sure I have House of Cards. Pretty sure I read it years ago. I'm pretty sure it's in my bedroom in the other room. I won't go and try and get it, but kudos. It's and a thanks. good place for it to be. Yeah. <laughs> At least you have it. At least you have it. Right. Next. You should have been sure of that before the podcast instead of pretty sure. You have okay, some pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm pretty sure I have it too then. Okay. Let's frame it that way. So, well, you know, you read about a, a number of great subjects on Puck, but today we wanted to talk about an article that you wrote called Fade to Blackstone, Insights into a REIT Headache. REITs obviously have a number of headaches right now. You know, there was a, a recent article in the Commercial Observer about the declining value of, of New York City office REITs, and you dig into some of the underlying issues in some detail. I guess a good place to start, pretend that we don't know anything, and some of our audience might not, what is a REIT? What does that mean? Well, it means a real estate investment trust, and I'm not sure I can expertly define what it is, but my understanding is it's a publicly uh, traded real estate company that's uh, invested in all sorts of uh, kinds of real estate, and I guess there are many different kinds of REITs, and I guess one of the reasons it's structured that way is because it pays out something like, you know, whatever, 90% of its income in the form of dividends or something to shareholders. And that's why people invest in these things. And I could be wrong about that, by the way, because again, I'm, uh, I don't pretend to be an expert in that, but I think that's my understanding. And these are all real estate driven so that, um, you know, in 2021, when real estate looks like it's, you know, interest rates are close to zero and cap rates are attractive, uh, you know, these things become immensely valuable. And when interest rates uh, go up and people don't want to pay their rent and the mortgages are larger than the value of the building, REITs uh, trade down. I think that's what we have going on here by and large. Not everything, but by and large. Yeah. So I think that summary is accurate. That's my understanding of them as well. So maybe you could sort of just give us a, the broad strokes of the article and, and you sort of started to sort of go there a little bit at the end, but just kind of explain like what's been happening over the last couple of years and how the value of these REITs has, has shifted with the changes in interest rates over the last few years. Well, well Cooper, as you, as you probably know, I mean, people have been talking about problems in big city commercial real estate for probably more than a year because ever since the Fed uh, pivoted, look, this is all, well, it's driven by a number of factors, but the two big factors or biggest factor, of course, is the end of the Fed zero interest rate policy, uh, the end of various quantitative easing programs that the Fed engaged in starting in 2009 and ending in 2022. 
So that's 13 years. That's a lot of people. That's a big portion of their professional career might, in fact, have been uh, during zero interest rate policy years when it looked like commercial real estate, especially in places like New York, Chicago, LA, and San Francisco, were just going to grow to the sky. But the combination of the pandemic, which of course had everybody working from home, and then the repercussions of the pandemic, where people liked working from home or liked working from home a couple of days a week or don't even mind the office, they just mind the commute. All sorts of office space is not uh, being fully utilized. The less, you know, the people leasing that office space or owning that office space are wondering why they're paying rent on it or paying interest on a mortgage. And so the calculus around commercial office space has just changed dramatically between uh, higher interest rates and the reluctance among some sectors of the economy in some big sti- big cities to for people to come back to work, back to the office. And so you see sort of that double whammy playing out, especially in places like New York and San Francisco and L.A. and Chicago, with people finding that, especially in quote-unquote class B space, the newer buildings, the one Vanderbilt's, the Hudson Yards, they're basically going to be doing pretty much okay. I mean, one Vanderbilt specifically, I guess, is, you know, hot property that's new, that's class A. But, you know, there's plenty of buildings all around New York that we all know of that are probably uh, being hit pretty hard right now. And so combination of the higher interest rates, people not wanting to go back to work or not wanting to commute back to work, offices sitting empty. I was talking to a guy the other day where the, you know, literally the office is sitting empty, but he still has to pay rent. I mean, that's got to be incredibly frustrating. And then there are people like uh, Blackstone and other big developers who incredibly, despite their sterling reputations, are actually, you know, walking away from properties and giving the keys back to the lenders because the value of a property is not more than the mortgage. So why should they work for the lenders? They work for the equity. And if the equity is underwater, they're going to give the keys back as incredible as that seems. Is it possible to sort of imagine this situation without the pandemic where a lot of these factors trending in this direction? Like, I mean, rates were obviously going to go up at some point and office vacancies were maybe going to go up as well. Like, was there anyone who sort of saw the writing on the wall before the pandemic or is the pandemic really kind of what shifted everything and poured lighter fluid on this whole thing? And we wouldn't be having this conversation if it weren't for the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the double whammy Mm -hmm. of the higher interest rates, which honestly, they kind of went up fast, but still are relatively low. I mean, I think you could have probably figured out that the calculus of that if it was just that. But I think the double whammy is really hurt. I mean, and the guy, of course, who usually saw around corners when it came to real estate, the unfortunately just late Sam Zell, who died a couple of weeks ago, he had given an interview shortly before he died where he talked about... Uh, Equity Commonwealth, his publicly traded uh, commercial real estate REIT, 
uh, that he set up in 2014, uh, where he said that, you know, he had sold all but four of the office buildings that were in the portfolio, and that he had, uh, in the past uh, nine years, had disposed of 164 uh, properties and three land parcels, and uh, at a gross sales price of nearly $7 billion, leaving four properties. And, uh, you know, he had absolutely no sympathy. In fact, he had disdain, as he said, for the people who bought those properties because they did not, uh, could not conceive of the fact that interest rates might go up or, you know, I can get why you might not conceive of a pandemic, but okay. Uh, You certainly had to conceive that interest rates would go up, reducing the value of these properties. But it's like the same people who bought junk bonds in the fall of 2021 when they were yielding under 4%. I mean, you have to be insane or or the same guy who ran Silicon Valley Bank and didn't hedge his uh, portfolio of, of treasury securities and, uh, and mortgage-backed securities bought at the top of the market. I mean, that's just utterly irresponsible as a fiduciary, as an investor. So some people do see these things and uh, react to them. Sam Zell w- was one. He, of course, sold another huge office a portfolio to Blackstone right before the 2008 financial crisis. And again, to Blackstone's credit, they turned around and sold most of it before the worst part uh, of that hit. But, you know, as we were talking about before, even in this situation, Blackstone has uh, had to give in the keys to several of the buildings that they own. I think you might have just touched on this a little bit, but you know, obviously you wrote about a number of the factors that led to the financial crisis, 2008, 2009. Do you see parallels when you talked about, at least in House of Cards, the greed and, and arrogance that kind of led to companies over leveraging themselves or, make, or placing bad bets? Are there parallels here with how office REITs approached the market and didn't do it. I mean, Sam Zell is the extreme, right? He, he sold off kind of all of his assets. Why were more companies not kind of taking a middle ground approach? I think it was, you know, Warren Buffett famously, famously said, you know, when the tide goes out, you'll see who's wearing a bathing suit. <laughs> That's what makes markets. There are always people who are buyers. And for every buyer, there's a seller. For every seller, there's a buyer. For every optimist, there's a pessimist. Uh, so, I mean, that's the way markets work or else they wouldn't work. So for every Sam Zell, there's going to be, you know, Steve Roth or whatever, who sees the, you know, it's just going to go on, go on and on. The good times will keep rolling. I mean, Again, I mean, how could you, in your right mind, invest in junk bonds when they're yielding below 4%? Everybody knows that the risk inherent in those uh, owning those securities, you know, you should get between 10, 11, 12% coupons or yields on that debt. And so buying it under 4%, I mean, I don't know what the mindset is there. I mean, here you've had the Fed buying, uh, you know, expanding its balance sheet from $900 billion to nearly $9 trillion in the course of its ZERP program. And you're at the tail end of that, clearly. And then you're still buying junk bonds yielding under 4%. The logic is defies me. And, you know, you don't have to be an expert in investing to know that 
bond market until the last year had basically been completely uninvestable. You could not invest in it. You should not invest in it. And I'm sure you know there were some pieces of commercial real estate that were the same way. But of course, there are some other parts, as people I interviewed for the article pointed out to me, like logistics, warehousing, prologis REIT, which is a logistics REIT, has a market value of $114 billion. And it's, it's up nearly 100% in the last five years. So not every REIT is the same, obviously. Not every real estate transaction is the same. So there are some segments of the real estate, commercial real estate market that are actually still attractive. And there are some that aren't. And it's the real skill and the art and where you get rewarded is when you can discern one from the other. Cooper's feelings are hurt because his entire trading philosophy is junk bonds. So sorry, Cooper. And class B office space. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you, if you can hold them to maturity and you don't have to mark them to market, uh, which I'm sure in your own portfolio, Cooper, you probably don't have to, nobody's requiring you to mark them to market. Then, uh, we won't tell. And maybe you're happy with uh, 3.98%, but no, you should be happier with the 10, 11, 12% that you could get right now in the junk bond market. Now, I think the junk bond market is worth taking a look at. But see, that's the thing. This psychology is so weird that when people are actually getting rewarded for the risks they're taking, they're uncomfortable. It looks too risky. They like it better when everybody's piling in and the yield is 4%, but that's exactly the moment where they should be running for the hills. You know, Warren Buffett also said, when everybody is selling, you should buy, and when everyone's buying, you should sell. That's why he's one of the world's richest men. Maybe now is the time to uh, start looking into Class B office space. Absolutely. But, you know, with the caveat that this is not investment advice, of course. <laughs> no, it's not legal advice or investment advice. Just, right. just you guys having fun. Just chatting. It seems like even recently, you know, a lot of these companies were purchasing and investing in the space. So adding amenity space. In one case, I forgot which building it was. There was a restaurant that was just built out and introduced. And after all of that, a lot of these companies were still willing to defend their obligations or give back the keys, walk away from the space. What does that say about the future of the office space market in your view? I think you were referring to 1740 Broadway, which was a Blackstone building. I think that was the old Mutual of New York uh, building on Broadway. And I I walked by there the other day just to see it uh, again. You know, they really did do a nice job building up the lobby. There is a new restaurant in there. And Gus Levy, uh, who was the senior partner at Goldman Sachs, you know, in the 70s, 60s and 70s, used to say that something well bought is half sold. If you buy something right at the right price, then it kind of sells itself when the time comes. Unfortunately, Cooper, I'm sorry to say this, if you buy junk bonds... uh, What's going on with you and the junk bonds? Yeah, yeah, look, you know why? I'll tell you why. Because junk bonds are like the canary in the coal mine. Okay. They're the canary in the coal mine. If junk bonds that should yield, you know, 11 or 12% are yielding 4%, then you know that people have lost their minds, okay? And 
you shouldn't be anywhere near that. The equivalent in real estate is cap rates, right? The cap rate is what so low or whatever that it makes no sense. Then you shouldn't be, you know, investing in at least the equity of real estate. Then either you, you, you know, I mean, I guess I've been around long enough at this point and seen so many cycles that you know I just refuse to get taken in by the euphoria of low yields on bonds, on low cap rates, on high PE stock prices, on uh, cryptocurrencies and NFTs and things that look too good to be true. Sure. So what do we think the future, I mean, maybe short-term and long-term looks like for office space in some of these places? I mean, is there anyone who's looking to buy these buildings when these buildings are defaulting? Are they finding buyers? What do we think is going to happen for the next, you know, is is San Francisco going to continue to get worse or are we sort of at the bottom? Like, do you have a sense? I don't don't think we're at the bottom, Cooper. I think, you know, we're probably in the second or third inning of the nine inning game. I think there's a lot more uh, commercial real estate. You know, it may not be the default. It could be just, you know, returning the keys. When Blackstone and Bernado and RXR and, you know, these big uh, developers and Abby Rosen are giving back the keys or trying to restructure their loans, uh, Brookfield Asset Management, then clearly it's like the thing to do. It's reputable. When the reputable guys are doing it, then there basically it's the green light for everybody. People are obviously have been uh, deals in uh, California at something called SKS uh, Real Estate, bought 350 California Street in San Francisco that was valued as much as 300 billion, 300 million in 2019. They bought it for 65 million. So wow. people are buying it. I mean, if you want, let's go buy 1740 uh, Broadway. I mean, uh, we could cut a deal with the mortgage holder. I'm sure they can't wait to get rid of it. But there are people, this is the time to be buying it, but not at par. I'm not going to buy your junk bond that yields under 4% at par. I'll buy it at a price so that it yields like 12%. You're not going to be happy, but I'll buy it from you. Question is, some people, you know, time has come like Blackstone or Bernardo or others, you know, who have to perfect their losses. I'm sure uh, John Gray is not happy about perfecting Blackstone's loss at 1740 Broadway, but he's got other big wins in logistics and the, the Coronado Hotel in San Diego. I mean, so it's a portfolio theory. And I remember spending a lot of time when I was writing my book about Goldman Sachs, talking to Gary Cohn, who was then the number uh, two guy at Goldman. And he was telling me, you know, this was d- during the financial crisis. Well, was, he was reflecting back upon the financial crisis. And he said, look, that Goldman alone on Wall Street marked down the value of its mortgage-backed security portfolio to 40, 50 cents on the dollar, whatever it would take to move it off their balance sheet. And he was willing to perfect that loss, whereas the rest of Wall Street wasn't willing to do that. And then they got Goldman was fine. And the rest of Wall Street got singed, as we know, and almost went down the tubes because of their portfolio of mortgage-backed securities that they wouldn't sell. So the smart thing is to sell the losers, get rid of them, take your pain, move on, and live to fight again. But 
A lot of people don't want to perfect their losses. And the smart people are out there, you know, scooping these things up for pennies on the dollar. And I'm sure they'll be rewarded. I mean, 1740 Broadway is a beautifully renovated building. I don't know what percentage is leased up. I'm sure there's a problem with that, but you could construct a purchase price that would reflect that. Yeah. And I wonder if some of the other types of properties that you wrote, wrote about in your article that are very profitable right now, you mentioned logistics and hotels are also kind of feeling the reverse effect from the pandemic. So hotels, people are, are more eager to travel. They're willing to pay more money now than ever because they want to get out of their house <laughs> away from their two bedroom apartment in New York City to a nice hotel. They've been saving money for the last couple of years because they haven't been spending as much. There are these really inflated prices, but maybe as things tip back to a little more normalcy, more companies require more people to come back into the office, less work from home. I guess I could see the hotel market maybe not fall into the type of situation that Class B office space is in, but move back towards the mean. Uh, yeah, I, I could certainly I could certainly see that. I don't think we've really figured out the whole work from home, work from the office balance yet. I mean, some sectors, yes. Uh, law firms. My son works in a law firm and he has to go back four days a week now, probably five soon. Wall Street is five. You know, they're not fooling around there. In apprenticeship businesses, which Wall Street is, which law is, consulting is, you got to be around your peers. You got to be around the water cooler. You got to be in. Other professions like, say, writing, you know, I don't need to be around anybody else. I mean, it's pretty solitary. It always was and always will be. And so, you know, I can chat with people, but no one's going to write the things for me. Look, I'm a huge believer. I think I wrote a piece in the New York Times, you know, three or four years ago now about how, you know, Wall Street was an apprenticeship business and people needed to be back in the office together. And I thought people thought I was crazy, but that's exactly the truth. And that's exactly what's how it's played out. So, I mean, Jamie Dimon is building a new, whatever, three or $4 billion headquarters over there on 270 Park. And the good news for him is that it's kind of single use. He's not looking for other tenants than other than J.B. Morgan Chase. So that'll be working out just fine, although I'm sure he's probably scratching his head about the timing of it all. But and he certainly didn't anticipate the pandemic, you know, in the old next to um, Grand Central on the other side of one Vanderbilt. So it's like one Vanderbilt, then Grand Central. Then on the other side is like the Grand Hyatt. That was Donald Trump's first big score in Manhattan that became, he did in partnership with the, uh, Grand, the Hyatt Hotel chain. It's still the Grand Hyatt Hotel. Now they're, they've got approval to take it down completely and build the tallest uh, building in Manhattan. RXR developers, whatever the heck their name is, are planning to do that or gotten approval to do it. I mean, so why are they doing that? Probably because one Vanderbilt is done so well. But, you know, by the time that thing gets built, if it ever gets built, you know, who knows what the market will be like then. One of the problems with real estate, of course, is it takes so long to get the approvals and to actually build the damn thing and then to get it leased up. You know, we're talking about often a decade before you know whether your investment, your whole conceptualization of the project will work out. 
I had one final question. I don't, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I just one final question just about the recent collapse of the small regional banks that we keep seeing and how that kind of factors in into this whole equation as well. Oh, is that a question, Cooper? I think it's a question. Oh, okay. From my understanding, I think the reason I was sort of teeing up the question is my understanding is that it's made it more difficult for potential buyers to get financing for a lot of the financing for some of these buildings, especially class B and maybe the less sexy projects out there was coming from the small regional banks. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that was my understanding. And now it's getting trickier to finance some of these projects because obviously the capital is not moving from those places anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's clear that, you know, these were niche banks, Silicon Valley bank catered to venture capitalists and their portfolio companies by and large. So they made, you know, attractive financing available so that either the venture capitalists and their fancy offices in Silicon Valley or their portfolio companies in their loft spaces, you know, could get attractive financing for those either leases or purchases. First Republic made below market mortgages available to their fancy clientele. I mean, so, you know, obviously that's kind of gone, but generally speaking, it's just harder to get a mortgage at the moment for office uh, buildings uh, or refinance them. You know, Abby Rosen was trying to refinance, I think, you know, the Seagram's building, and I think uh, he couldn't get it done and got an extension instead. He got a relief. So there's all sorts of negotiations, I'm sure, going on. I mean, but between higher interest rates and, you know, the state of the commercial real estate market generally, I think lenders are going to be more reluctant to lend. But again, if you're talking about like logistics or warehouses or some other aspect that's doing well, you probably will get the money you need. So again, it's all specific to particular income statements and sectors of the market. And by the way, I just want to say before we finish, I don't know anything about Cooper's portfolio. I was just kidding around. I'm sure he's not over leveraged on junk bonds, but if he is, it sounds like maybe that's a good thing now. So who knows? Now I'm feeling, now I'm feeling good about it. <laughs> this was great. It'd be great to have you back on maybe in, in six months or a year when we see how this, this shakes out a little bit more, see if the market's turning, maybe talk to you in the sixth inning as opposed to the second or third inning and see what that means for the end of the ball game. But we really appreciate your time. Before we let you go, where can people read your stuff, listen to you? How can they hear more from you? I've written seven books. My last one was about the rise and fall of GE called Power Failure. So I have a website, williamcohen.com, which has about 80% of everything I've ever done on it. But I, you know, I write for the Times. I write for something called Airmail. I write for the Financial Times, Town & Country. Used to be a special correspondent at Vanity Fair, now founding partner at Puck. So you know, a little Googling will get anybody whatever they need but you can get your fix sounds like, sounds like they can find you anywhere is the answer to the question and not quite everywhere but many places <laughs> and you can get your fix if you need it we appreciate this short fix and uh, it was really great to my pleasure your thoughts thanks so much thank you thank so you much. guys i really appreciate it for more on all things real estate and the law subscribe to this and our other podcasts follow bergstein flynn knowlton and polina on social media Subscribe to our newsletter 
and go to bfklawoffice.com. That's bfklawoffice.com to learn more.